Welcome to Live at the Nupa. You're here with JB and David Cunningham. Episode 30. I think next week's going to be our last one, JB. So we've been talking about what will come. For this year. For this year. For this year. So just to signal what's coming next week and what we're going to talk about this week. So next week we're going to sort of do a bit of a what happened in 2023 and what are our predictions for 2024. Yeah. Which we'll hold ourselves accountable at the end of 2024 (laughs) to see how well we did. But this time, this week, we're going to talk about what are the big global influences as they impact the globe, but also New Zealand over the next sort of decade or even couple of decades. So getting very big picture and then next week sort of getting more micro about what, what's happening in New Zealand. Yeah. So Exciting. let's kick us off. So, I mean, there are probably a whole bunch of things we can cover, but what what's, should we signal what we're going to talk about or just knock off well, one by one? Yeah, let's quickly go through the list. So we've got obviously artificial intelligence, which is massive, climate change, cops yep. happening at the moment. Yep. So, so that's very topical. One that I've talked a bit about in the past, debt-fueled growth slash consumerism. Is that coming to an end? That has massive implications for for business owners. Inequality, which I guess is driving high levels of social unrest. Nationalism, that's a real global thing at the moment. Uh, And then population growth and aging population, mm. different dynamics, I guess, yeah. occurring in different parts of the world. Wow, you could spend an episode on each of those, but <laughs> you know, let's rip into it. There'll probably be a few more that emerge as we go. So where shall we start? Shall we start with AI? It sort of has been the topic of 2023. You know, ask people across yeah. the world or in New Zealand, you know, what's AI? You know, a year ago, it would have been quite vague, but ChatGPT and BARD and all those things have just exploded. And it's been the news story from a tech perspective in the last year, really. Yeah. So looking forward to 10 years, what's the... I mean, what's our experience with AI so far? So, you know, if I think about the squirrel business, we've struggled to find good use cases for AI. I mean, we've automated a lot in our business and mm. we've, we've probably taken out a, a, a lot of sort of uh, low value adding labor. So, you know, admin roles don't really exist anymore because our technology does most of mm. that. But to be honest, most of it's not AI. Most of it is just us, you know, coding and digitizing the business, right? Mm. Um, AI, you had machine learning models. We've used that a little bit in terms Mm. of analyzing large pools of data. Um, But we've never really gone beyond that, right? The idea of a robot taking over a human hasn't really occurred. We've seen some use of robots in the sense that with some of our lenders, when we submit an application, they've actually got robots on the other side of it that read the applications coming in and then load those applications into Mm. their system. So that's uh, process automation, right? So a little bit of that sort of stuff coming through. But That's not really AI, though. That's not using smarts. It's basically following a code and instruction, isn't it? Exactly. And then we thought probably some form of automated credit decisioning would be where we would start to use you know some sort of machine learning which is you know basic AI mm. coming coming through but in all honesty with mortgages it, it's a relatively straightforward process that you don't need that right so again we we're struggling with use cases the real big change for us has been these large language, language models, models. Yeah. And, yeah. and things like open AI right so how yeah. are we using it so the two case studies or the two use cases that we've got going at the moment 
The first one is that we've got, uh, we're training AI to read all of the bank's credit policies mm -hmm. so that we can then ask the AI any questions about credit mm. and it will be able to answer it. So mm. for example, which bank has got the best policy for a 40 square meter apartment? Mm. And it will tell us. Um, and, and the reason that that's really useful is because it's very hard for advisors to stay on top of 20 lenders, mm. very detailed 100 mm. page credit policies. So, how does that compare with me as an individual just going online and asking, you know, Bard or ChatGPT or something, who's got the best credit policy for 40, you know, square meter apartments? Well, nothing, right? But, but I, does, I guess the individual doesn't have that information because banks don't publish their credit policies. They don't, yeah. But we have access to those, yeah. So it's creating a far more efficient process for an advisor, but it still means uh, an advisor is key in that and, and that's what we've been saying to the team, right? It's about co-piloting, is yeah, that yeah. the AI is going to assist the human, but it's not going to replace a human. Mm. And look, I've said this probably on this podcast previously, but... My now famous JB quote, you know, would you jump on a plane without a pilot? Because a plane can fly on autopilot, you know, from takeoff right the way through to landing. Mm. But it's never going to happen right. There's so much of this stuff, particularly when risk is involved, where that human connection, the relationship, all of that mm. stuff's really important. Mm. So in a lot of instances, whilst everyone sort of says, oh, AI is going to take things over, it's just going to change it. Mm. You know, the relationship side, the human side, the empathy and the engagement side of this stuff continues. We're just making it more efficient. Mm. The processes are getting better. Yeah, I mean, is it something to be scared of? Because here's a reflection. When I was a kid and I had a school uh, project to do for school, I either went to the library or on my birthday, I think each each year or something I got another volume of the encyclopedia or something and so I'd go to the encyclopedia and you know and end up writing the school project whatever it was my I've got two sets of kids older ones when the older ones said we're going through school university they'd go to the internet and uh, research and so on the next wave of kids now are going to start to go to you know the AI large language models JetGBTs and so on and ask questions they'll still have to interpret that rather than cutting and pasting into their assignment and so on but it's just an evolution and I guess the point is not to get hung up on the fact that technology is going to do the job it's like technology is going to assist the delivery of something I got a couple yeah. of good examples one is I had to write a job description so I said to an AI model write a job description for XYZ role and man it did a bloody good job and I got someone that's in that job to review it and they said it's 90% there. Another example was an HR related letter that needed to be written and I just sort of said you know write this to this person about this thing saying this and it wrote this beautiful letter and I um, sent it on to our HR person she said well I'm out of a job sometime soon aren't I? <laughs> but the reality is it isn't it just made her more efficient and me more efficient so it's that sort of co-pilot concept. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, I mean, we run the risk of getting worried about the scary part of AI. You know, AI takes over the world, gets a mind of its own. But that's more the stuff of movies, or is it? Well, who knows, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure at some point in the future, I mean, if you follow sort of Ray Kurzweil's stuff, the singularity, what he calls the singularity, is not that far away. Mm. must be close to 10 years away now, which mm. is when you have an AI that has more intelligence than the entire human race. Yeah. 
that will happen. Mm. I mean, it's inevitable. Mm. So, you know, I mean, guess this is why people way smarter than us mm. are thinking and discussing this sort of stuff because mm. uh, that is the reality. Mm. Probably they've inside our lifetimes, mm. right? In fact, instead of thinking about it, AI can do a better job than the human at think many, many things already. So, for example, I can go online and research some stuff, but I don't know, it's blimmin' time consuming, or else I can ask a large language model to mm. the question and it goes and does all the hard work in a few seconds and gives me the answer. The question is, is that answer right? But I suppose the counter to that is, when I go and research that myself, am I picking the right facts and figures and so on? So I'm probably not right more frequently than the AI model might not be right. And yet we put the AI model on a pedestal as, you know, mm. that's flawed and not acceptable that it can be a little bit wrong, whereas humans can be flawed and everyone just accepts it. So in some ways you could just argue it's an acceptance thing that's in, there's a new sort of way. Because humans are going to be way more flawed on average than computers, aren't they? Yeah, and look, I think there's, there's big implications globally in that there are jobs that will change dramatically. The areas I think about are things like call centres, where I think you will be able to talk to AI and probably not know the difference between that and a human mm. and not just in future. And look, if you think about it, most of our call centers are in the Philippines anyway, so. Mm. Mm. So you'll get a consistent, friendly voice that never has a bad day. You'll get a <laughs> uh, accurate answer 100% of the time. The training Probably is, with a Kiwi accent. The training cost is zero, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but jobs will change, you know. There's always been this all through my life. It's like, this job is gonna be replaced by and therefore will all be unemployed, but actually there's a new job that comes along and so a job might disappear, but there's a whole lot more of new stuff that comes along. And so, you know, do we run the risk of over-dramatizing the impact on employment? And Well, I think, that, I mean, look, there's a, another topic in here, inequality, which I think is a really big issue on so many fronts. And the only concern I've got, so not so much about AI, but probably more about robotics. Mm. And robotics, maybe a combination of both, AI and robotics ability to remove low-skill jobs. Mm. Because, you know, you're going to have high-skill jobs will, will always exist, right? And, and there's always going to be a place for humans. There will still be a place for humans in perhaps largely unskilled roles, certainly in things like hospitality, mm. uh, tourism. Building roads. Definitely road. in construction. construction um, yeah. But, you know, there are going to be areas where that's going to disappear as well, and so... But hey, wouldn't you argue that the production line building a car displaced jobs? Because originally it was like one tradesperson built True. the car, then True. suddenly it was a production line. True. And then guess what? You know, robots have largely replaced workers in construction lines. So there's always an evolution, but I suppose the trend has been towards more services economy jobs as opposed to production type but, stuff. But look, I also think though that, uh, I mean, you know, if you think about the evolution of society, you know, the industrial now revolution through, yeah. to, through <laughs> to now, no, but the knowledge economy, right, yeah. is that there is, you know, we've got a much more educated workforce now than we had back then, mm. right, because education sort of got passed out to, to the mass population, whereas in the old days it was largely limited to the wealthy. Mm. Um, so we democratised education, and I guess the web does the same today. But it, it does highlight, um, you know, picking on this next point, inequality, is that there is definitely a haves and haves nots. And in a way, you know, there's a risk with things like robotics and AI that it actually just expands the gap, mm. right? Well, is it rich get richer, the poor get poorer, or is the rich get richer fast, then the poor get richer fast? You know, so it's a relative, the gap 
um, increases, but everyone's better off? Is that sort of a fair reflection, do you think? Well, I think there's an argument around that for sure. Mm. I think there's a lot of people out there at the moment, though, that would not feel like they're getting better off. And that probably feeds into nationalism, right? And we've seen that around the world. Mm. Like, disgruntled middle New Zealand, middle America, middle UK, middle France, where, you know, they're just feeling like they're getting nowhere, and that fundamentally is what's been driving this. Do you think the ultra-wealthy is part of that story? Because if I sort of think about the ultra-wealthy, so the billionaires, the multi-billionaires, actually most of them in their lifetime now are, are giving back that fortune to society, aren't they? Well, is some, that the norm or is that just the highlight? Nah, there's they, some, yeah. right? Some. I mean, how many dumb rich kids are out there waltzing around on the social pages? Mm. But was um, that the case with mum and dad's ago? money? Was, was oh, no, it's always been the always case, been, right? Yeah. Um, Darwinism doesn't work properly, you know? Like, <laughs> well, eventually it does. Eventually it does. But <laughs> what are those ta- Darwin Awards? <laughs> <laughs> it, takes, it takes too long, right? Mm. But, you know, um, probably, I mean, if we were to jump onto another topic at the moment, it would be climate change. But before we go to climate change, I, I really want to come to debt-fueled growth. Because I think, look, this is a weird one. It's not one that's sort of talked much about out there. And, you know, mm. most people are sort of talking uh, climate, mm. you know, inequality, nationalism, that sort of stuff. This debt-fueled growth, look, the reason that this is so important, and I've been talking about this for years on and off, is that fundamentally for the last 20 or 30 years we've had massive global debt expansion i mean because of interest rates falling has that been the driver or what else well loosening credit policies you can borrow large amounts of money these days high lvrs or low deposits you know credit policy is a lot more relaxed than it has been in past generations as you said, lower interest rates mm-hmm. that have got, you know, uh, during COVID certainly got to you know, incredibly almost, yeah. low mm-hmm. levels, fundamentally debt fueled growth. Um, and so, so what do we mean? I guess, you know, we've got a mortgage, residential mortgage lending now is up to about getting close to 400 billion, right? Mm-hmm. And what was it back year 2000? Mm. But, but to be fair, JB, um, credit losses are way lower despite that debt fuel growth. So is that the impact of technology helping lenders make better decisions and so having the confidence to lend I'm to not, a consumer? I, I'm not, I'm, yeah, it's not so much a, a, a critique of credit quality or anything mm. like that. It's driven. What, what it's saying is that all of that debt growth, mm. right, has flowed into the economy mm. as stimulatory money mm. that has driven consumerism. Mm. It's driven spending. It's driven people buying stuff. Yeah. Now, yeah. initially, that might be buying houses and mm. house prices are going mm. up, but then the people that are selling those houses mm. are ending up with wads of cash that are getting spent on mm. cars mm. and mm. holidays and, and various I guess other bits like, and pieces. And like, you know, a decade ago that was you know partly credit cards was at the sharp edge of that then it became buy now pay later you know why why wait eight weeks to buy it when I can buy it now and pay it over eight weeks not much different from a credit card but it took that psychology to a younger demographic so and when, and I, I think the thing what, what we're seeing now right is that you're entering into this creosote moment so for anyone under 50 they won't know what that is that uh, creosote uh, was a character on a Monty Python film who ate so much that uh, at the end, the waiter gave him a wafer-thin piece of chocolate and he exploded. Yeah, yeah. And, and it feels like that, that's a good expression of um, our debt-fueled economy is we are chocker full of debt, right? 
we cannot grow debt like we used to, mm. which means that you're not going to have as much stimulus going into the economy. And what's more, you know, your spending generations, which are basically Generation X, is probably the big one coming through now, mm. where historically your baby boomers and stuff came through with high discretionary incomes that experienced massive increase in house prices and they didn't have a lot of debt. Gen X is the first generation that's going to be coming through. There's mm. still going to be high levels of debt, yeah, high interest yeah. rates. They're not going to have strong discretionary incomes. They're not going to have as much free cash flow as the generations before. And this is, we're experiencing this a bit at the moment in the economy because interest rates are really high. And I guess, you know, hospitality is feeling it, retail is feeling it. We, you know, we can see it coming through in the numbers. And we would say, at the moment, we would say that's just because we're at the top of an interest rate cycle. But I think if you stretch this out over 10 to 20 years, there's actually something bigger in play here. Mm. And that bigger thing in play is, yes, we're at the top of an interest rate cycle, and yes, you can see that the level of debt that we're carrying is starting to you know, pull back this consumerism. But I think this is a longer-term trend. I and guess it's that's not going the thing. Away. It's a sort of a long, slow burn. I mean, it is interesting to see, for example, credit card balances have been declining for several years now, and I suppose that's sort of early stage of that. You know, buy now, pay later has peaked and is sort of winding back. We've had a few of those companies, you know, pull the pin. So with that consumerism lens on, you know, brands are so important these days, aren't they? I think this is where the younger generations coming through might see a little bit of a shift here, right? So definitely Generation X, Generation Y, we were the generations that these brands emerged from, which is consumerism, right? So if you think back to sort of post-World War II, um, I guess it really sort of started in the 60s and 70s with the advent of the Mm. mall and and everyone was just encouraged to borrow and spend Mm. credit cards, everything sort of started Mm. to come into the market. And all of these brands have emerged from this. I mean, you just have to go, and and then look where it's getting manufactured, right? So literally all of the stuff's manufactured out of China. Mm. And so what's interesting is that if consumerism isn't dead, because it it doesn't just die, but if if consumerism is morbidly obese and and we can't keep growing it Mm. without risking the system, right? that's going to take a lot of growth out of the global economy. Mm. And it has massive implications for places like China. Though I'm, I'm sort of not so sure that consumerism from a brand perspective is, you know, my daughter's 12 and, you know, Huffer and Levi, you know, it's, it's, she's still very brand driven, you know, Mac for makeup and so on. You know, it's, it's, I'm not seeing anything different her from her older sister who's 20 years older. <laughs> 20 years ago. In fact, probably more brand awareness than less. That's sort of what I'm seeing. And, you know, what I'd argue is, you know, go to places like China with a, a massive middle class, still, yeah. you know, there's still a lot of yeah. organisation in there, very high savings rates. But, you know, having the iPhone or the label has become more important. India's got, I think, the biggest middle class in the world and more millionaires than in America. It's just the sheer scale of the country, even though there's a lot of poverty, you know, one point billion people the biggest country in the world you know that emerging wealth in a country like that you know it's like having that brand as a part of it so maybe it's like there's emerging consumerism in some countries very brand driven and in others um, jury's out for me yeah i'm not i'm not suggesting that brands are going to die i just think that the idea that you can have such massive premiums on brands 
will be challenged. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe and next and year. And the lower growth. And the lower growth. Well, look, I think the fundamental for me is that I think we're going into a lower growth world. world. Yeah. And if we add to that, so if we think about this idea that debt levels, we're morbidly obese, we can't consume more by borrowing more money. Consumption patterns are going to reduce, yeah, which is yeah. going to have downstream impacts on countries actually, like China. Actually, population growth is one of those things that's going to influence that too, isn't it? Because many uh, Western countries have an aging population, and in fact, a shrinking population. So actually, the yeah. biggest country in the world, um, one of the biggest, is shrinking. That's China, because of yeah. the one-child policy has been a big part of that. So their population is reducing. There's nevertheless an urbanization that will continue sort of trends there, but you know, Europe, you know, places like Japan have had a declining population for several decades and their economic growth has been very low. You know, Europe is in the same situation. I mean, places like New Zealand, Australia, Canada have growing populations despite the aging population. That's because of migration, because we're really attractive places to live. But you know, think about those big trading blocks like the European Union with overall declining population. I mean, that's going to be a drag on world growth unquestionably, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. And ultimately China, maybe not for a while. When we're talking through all of this, I think the biggest thing for me is we're going into a low growth world. We're transitioning from a period where we had high debt fuel growth, we had globalization, we had a whole lot of things destroying the environment. You know, we basically destroyed the environment. We uh, did globalization. We fueled it all with debt. And there's a, there's a bit of a come to Jesus moment that comes with that. And so I think we're transitioning essentially into quite a low growth world. Now, the interesting thing with a low growth world is, you know, um, a lot of these other issues sort of hover around it. No, yeah, I so, think, so yeah, inequality and nationalism, you know, you yeah. have movements. And I think we're seeing that politically the world over actually is that, um, you know, it's a swing to either the left yeah. or the right. So away from the sort of centre, which is centre's been a happy place to be when everyone's, you know, feeling wealthy. Good. And, yeah. yeah, well, this is it, right? When everyone's feeling good, when everyone's yeah. feeling wealthy, when everyone has seen progress, mm. every everything is pretty stable. Which brings me to the final point, which is probably climate change. Mm. My view on this is that they can talk all they like, they're actually going to get very little traction. And the reason is because we're going into a low-growth world and climate change is inflationary. Climate change puts additional cost into economies that are struggling to grow. And look, if economies were growing strongly, then um, that's an easy conversation to have. But when economies are weak, mm. it's a very difficult conversation to have. And if you look at what's happening at the moment in terms of, well, the supposed reduction in coal and gas use, right, hasn't happened, it's actually increased. Mm. And, you know, you look to Europe and stuff where that's sort of become mission critical. Is it though, JB, you know, I mean, fossil fuels are, is ultimately the root cause of the increase in temperatures globally. Yeah. Yep. So getting rid of phasing out use of fossil fuels or dramatically reducing it. And the answer is obviously green energy, which is sun, wind, wave, those sort of Nuclear. things. Ge geothermal. Is, would be in that camp too, nuclear. Yep. And so all the solutions are there. It's simply a scale thing. So we've spent a hundred and something years building a world dependent on fossil fuels. And we're saying in 20 years, we need to remove that dependency at scale. You know, windmills have been around for hundreds of years, but you know, I remember traveling in California 30 years ago and there were 
miles and miles of windmills, but today there are these high-tech windmills that will produce 10 times as much. And, and so it's just that the pace of investment in those green energies, wind, solar, etc., has got to massively accelerate. Is that really what the, the one thing that needs to happen? And therefore fossil fuels use will decline because there's an alternative. Yeah, well, I think, I think that's what has to happen, yeah. right? But the question is, do the political elite have the willpower to push mm. that through mm. when they're facing you know, economies that are not growing and mm. they've got lots of domestic issues at home? And yeah. I think mm. everyone talks a good game, but what you can see is everyone's yeah. backtracking at the well, moment well, here's on their the commitments. Thing. I, I, I think companies, corporates, have the biggest role to play here. Governments can sort of set the rules and can subsidise and things like that. But we're seeing this happening in Australia where shareholder activism is driving some companies. Some. Yeah, and I think that's going to be increasingly the case. Shareholder activism will drive companies to deliver the right outcomes. Yeah. Hey, we should finish up there. We could go on forever on this one. <laughs> um, so, hey, next week, what happened in 2023 and reflections and predictions for 2024. That's us for another week. We'll catch you next week for episode 31. Next week, yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have any questions or things you'd like us to talk about in the future, get in touch with us at david at squirrel.co.nz or john at squirrel.co.nz. And please do share this uh, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not financial advice or a recommendation of any financial product. Any commentary provided are personal views and are not necessarily representative of the opinions of Squirrel. As always, we recommend seeking professional investment or mortgage advice before taking any action.